This podcast is presented by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at www.uctv.tv. Enjoy the presentation. Good morning, and welcome to the OSHA Lifelong Learning Institute Distinguished Lecture Series coming from the campus of UC San Diego. Osher Institute presents over 40 classes each quarter from art, music, science and technology, history, writing, workshops, and literature. It is my pleasure now to introduce Dan Dynan, who will introduce our host for today, Dr. Jane Vaya. Thank you. Dan? Thank you, Stan. Ladies and gentlemen, good morning, and welcome to the revolution. Yes, our distinguished lecturer this morning is a true revolutionary. Dr. Jane Via and her Catholic community here in San Diego have taken a stand against the male-dominated hierarchy of the centuries-old Roman Catholic Church. They have rebelled against the injustice of this discrimination against women in the Church. They have put the Vatican on notice that they will no longer wait for the change from the top on the questions of women's ordination. Jane and her community, the Mary Magdalene, the Apostle Catholic community, are changing things from the bottom, just as revolutionaries of the past, like George Washington, Martin Luther King, and Rosa Parks, they are willing to break unjust rules and accept the consequences to achieve progress and justice. The message from this soft-spoken woman has reached the marble halls of the Vatican, and the ball is in their court. We all await their response. Jane has made it very clear that she is not part of a schism against the Roman Catholic Church, but rather wants to work positively within the Church. No matter what the hierarchy says, Jane and her community are not leaving Catholicism. They consider the people are the real Church, and not the hierarchical establishment. Let me tell you a little bit about Jane, if I may. She is an ideal person to lead the reform in the church. She comes from a solid Midwestern background, born in St. Louis, did her undergraduate work at Purdue, majoring in Spanish studies, and received her doctorate in religious education at Marquette. After coming to San Diego, she was a tenured theological professor at the University of San Diego and also obtained her law degree at the University of San Diego. Somebody said, wow. (laughs) I agree with that. Her present job, this is a day job that she has, is with the San Diego District Attorney's Office where she is a deputy DA and a prosecuting attorney. She's been married to her husband, Phil, for many years and has two grown sons in college. In summary, Jane is not a radical, but a very talented, well-adjusted woman, a theologian, a lawyer, a teacher, a prosecuting attorney, a wife, and most of all, a mother, just the kind of person the Roman Catholic Church needs to be a priest and to join their priesthood. Jane, we are honored to have you with us today, and we welcome you to the Osher Lifelong Learning Institute here at UCSD. Jane? 
That was a humbling introduction. Thank you very much, Dan. And it's a pleasure to be here with you this morning. Thank you very much for inviting me. Thank you for taking time from your lives to come and consider the issues pertaining to women in religion in general and to women in the Roman Catholic Church in particular. I thank you for that. As I tried to formulate my story into a presentation that's organized and structured and uh, coherent, uh, but also one that can be told in about 35 minutes, <laughs> I decided to focus on this dimension, which I've called From Rage to Courage. And I'd like to start by saying that I think there were three facets of my life which brought me to ordination. I'm sure there are many others, but for the purposes of our discussion today, I think there are three primary facets that really moved me in this direction long before I knew it was going to happen. Uh, Number one, my earliest memories from at least age three relate to God and God life. Um, It's just the way I was born into the world. It's part of who I am as a human. Secondly, also from my really early childhood, very early childhood, I was extremely aware of gender imbalance. It was very clear to me who got the important roles in our society and in our church. And I was I suppose you could say from very early childhood, a budding feminist, um, I was as a result a tomboy because I wanted to align myself with the community that um, could enable me to participate in a full and meaningful way. And uh, my father encouraged me to be anything that I wanted to be, which I think was a very important factor. As an aside, I'd like to just mention to you at the outset that throughout my entire life, um, I've been blessed with relationships with wonderful egalitarian men who encouraged me and supported me in a variety of ways and in a variety of endeavors to be myself, to explore my gifts, to realize my talents, and to um, step up to the challenges of life in the modern world and in the church. And that continues to be true to this day. And finally, I don't know why, but I seem to have been born with a strong sense of justice and injustice. I was asked recently, where does that come from in you? I've been thinking about it since I was asked the question. I don't know. I don't know if it's inborn. I don't know if it's related to my personal experiences. I don't know, but it's definitely there. And for me, it always connected to the issues of women. I think I've learned over a professional lifetime that most of us can only manage making a significant contribution to one aspect of injustice. There are many, many varieties of enormous injustice in the world. Mine focuses on women. So these three things are important because they converge in a really dramatic way for me in my adult life. 
a little background. I knew by the time I was 10 that I wanted to be a Catholic. I pursued that possibility for myself in every po- in every way that I could, given the circumstances of my life at the time. And I continued to do that until I went away to college at age 17. And at age 18, I became a Catholic. So I became immersed in the formal study of Catholicism in the relatively immediate aftermath of Vatican II. It was such an exciting time. There was excitement, enthusiasm, hope, uh, the realignment of the Roman Catholic Church of pre-Vatican II theology with gospel values was extremely energizing and exciting. Um, I had a fabulous experience, a very positive, rewarding, enriching experience at the Catholic community at Purdue, which was um, one of the most formalized campus ministries in the United States, even way back when I went to college. And I think I was nurtured there towards leadership in the church. I wasn't unaware of how the church discriminated against women, but I was hopeful because of Vatican II that Vatican II would result in changes in a church and that one of those changes might be that women and men could function as equals When I graduated from Purdue, ordination was obviously unavailable to me because I was a woman. I considered briefly the convent, realized this is definitely not for me. And so I took really the only available alternative, which was to pursue a doctorate in religious studies. And I was one of the first generation of Roman Catholic women to do doctoral studies in theology at a Catholic university in the post-Vatican II era. So the clash between these three aspects of me, my love of God, my strong sense of justice, and my what I'm calling for the moment feminism, because it's a nice short way to capture my strong convictions about justice for women, that began in graduate school. Um, And I'll just give you two tiny anecdotes, and I hope that they illustrate how slowly the process of what I would call radicalization, but radical in the sense of getting back to the roots of everything, how slowly this process of radicalization occurred for me. One is that when I got to the Religious Studies Department at Marquette, it was mostly men, mostly clergy, or former clergy, or clergy students, people who were studying to be clergy, and there were some women. But I was, and I was probably one of the youngest in the department when I arrived, I was labeled the department ornament. Now, it was done affectionately, and I appreciate that, and I understand that, but it nonetheless remains true that I think I was seen as a decoration to the community. I was not taken seriously as a scholar. Another little detail that I recall very well, as, a, as, as a, it's insignificant in many ways, but it was a moment that like turned a light on for me. One of my Jesuit friends... Um, mother died, and at the funeral, it was concelebrated by 
I don't know, maybe 25 Jesuits because he was a Jesuit and because he was well-loved. Priests came from all around to con celebrate at his mother's funeral. I was at the back with yet another Jesuit friend of mine, and he said to me quietly, what do you think of con celebration? And I looked up there, and I found myself saying to him, well, <laughs> I like that so many people are participating, but it's so overwhelmingly male. So, over this time, I had this gradual dawning, <laughs> this gradual experience of enlightenment regarding the extent to which women are discriminated against in the Roman Catholic Church. And I hasten to say, not just the Roman Catholic Church, the Christian Church, the Buddhist religion, in virtually every religion of the world, women are not treated as equals. I graduated from uh, Marquette and went on to teach religious studies, specifically New Testament studies. And so that's an important piece. I was immersed day in and day out in the New Testament literature and specifically in the gospel traditions very often. I taught full-time for uh, from 1974 to 1983, and then I taught part-time off and on for about 10 years. Well, teaching New Testament required a whole different type of preparation for me than being a student of New Testament studies in a graduate program. And I began to learn things that I never learned in school. I'll share just a few of them with you. I learned that many doctrines which claim to be rooted in Scripture aren't. I learned that Many doctrines are based on a very distorted interpretation of a passage in Scripture. I learned that many of our doctrines are contrary to the values of the historical Jesus. I learned that many doctrines are literally man-made. I learned that radical inclusivity characterized Jesus' life his ministry, his teaching, and that it contributed very much to his public uh, execution. And I learned that Jesus' radical inclusivity extended clearly to women in virtually all facets of his life. Another important factor was the emerging feminist studies uh, in the post-Vatican II era as women earned their doctorates in religious studies and began to become researchers and authors in theological studies. Just a phenomenal amount of work was done on history, on scripture, on systematic theology, on every dimension of religious studies as it pertained to women in the history and uh, in terms of envisioning what might be more authentic in light of the historical Jesus. And so reading feminist theology <coughs> excuse me, and participating in local groups, Woman's Spirit of San Diego, Women's Ordination Conference locally, and other groups, um, helped me to understand 
the radical importance of inclusive God language to the transformation of the church from a patriarchal, monarchical, classicist institution to the pilgrim people of God. It radicalized me without me realizing I was being radicalized. So more and more, these three things came together. And I moved from a dim perception of the church's discrimination against women to an incredulous realization of the hypocrisy of many, many, if not most, men serving in the hierarchy to rage at the institution for its, number one, hypocrisy, and number two, clericalism and misogyny. What happened was I began to lose hope. I began to lose hope that anything could change in the church. And aside, during this time, I met and married my wonderful husband, who is a driven-away Catholic. (laughs) And we had two sons, a reality which I believe helped me to keep my feminism very balanced. Balanced. It made it easy for me to remain constant in my perception and my conception of feminism as a commitment to the radical equality of men and women in the personal, religious, social, and political spheres of human life. And meanwhile, I did everything I knew how to do, everything I knew what to do in order to try to change the church. I regularly attended church, rarely missed a Sunday. I was a lector. I was a Eucharistic minister. At one point, I served on a parish council. I was still teaching for many of those years at the university. I was lecturing widely for a while at local parishes. Um, Later, as I became more and more disillusioned and lost hope, I joined an ecumenical Christian community with a Catholic origin in history, which became a very important part of my journey. And all of these things kept me going in the church, despite my profound dis-ease, disappointment, disillusionment, and growing awareness of marginalization, the radical marginalization of women in the Roman Catholic tradition, I realized that as a woman, I am outside of the community of the church in many ways that matter. And at the same time, in the big picture, things got progressively worse for women. The new code of canon law essentially rendered the theology of Vatican II inapplicable, to say it differently. It rendered the theology of Vatican II illegal. The papacy remained anti-female. Look at all of the important encyclicals. Almost all of them relate to women directly or indirectly. Whether we're talking about women's ordination, birth control, despite the gross overpopulation of the planet and the dramatic depletion of the world's resources, Um, Not very long ago, I think it's only five years ago, Pope John Paul II made a woman who was a victim 
for years of domestic violence in her marriage, a saint. Uh, Bishops were subjected to loyalty oaths, as were clergy and Catholic scholars, not to discuss or promote women's ordination. So gradually, I lost more and more hope. And I think that in addition to this gradual radicalization process, there were major radicalizing events in my life. Perhaps to others, they might not have had the impact. I I can only share with you the impact that these events had on me. Um, The first was that I I came up against a major tenure crisis um, at the university where I was teaching. I passed the tests of scholarship as a publishing uh, scholar. I passed the test of service to the university by serving on many committees and working hard on them. I passed the test of quality teaching. I had good teacher evaluations, but I did not pass the test of, quote, Catholicity, close quote. Um, All the Catholic clergy in the department voted against my tenure, and I I'll never know, I'm sure, what all the reasons were, but I do believe that one of them was that at the time I was the only articulate feminist, Catholic, theologian, theological voice in San Diego County, and and I was being invited to speak at many local parishes. Um, I experienced a lot of personal cruelty on the part of clergy. I remember getting almost sick to my stomach in the morning, driving up the hill to the university. Essentially, to get tenure, I was forced to submission to clerical power, and it was a very painful and extremely disillusioning experience. The second radicalizing event was that I was silenced by the bishop for signing the 1984 New York Times ad which is characterized as the 1984 New York Times ad in favor of abortion. It was not. It was an ad that said that the Catholic scholars and social activists who signed it thought that perhaps the official church should dialogue about and consider the possibility that some abortions may be, under some circumstances, a moral choice. In a world of nuclear war and napalm, with napalm on one side in our past and nuclear war on the other, where we obliterate entire masses of humans, uh, it seemed to me that that is not an inappropriate consideration. But as a result of signing that ad, I was silenced. I could no longer speak in any public Catholic forum on any subject. So meanwhile, I'd received my law degree. Could I teach at a Catholic university and teach law? No, I could not. I could not speak on any subject in any public Catholic forum. Third radicalizing event. Um, I was part of a, a wonderful university Catholic community that played an enormous part in keeping me in. And I give the Paulist clergy credit for keeping me really within the um, embrace of official Catholicism as long as I stayed there. Um, But there came a point when this community faced a housing crisis. 
the hierarchy took the opportunity of this housing crisis to intervene in the community and insist that uh, all of the things that made the community wonderful for me um, be abandoned. And I might add, every one of them pertained directly or indirectly to women in the community. So it was a very, very painful personal experience for me. And although I did what I could for one year to try to reverse what had happened, uh, it became clear to me that I, I simply could not stay there, and I left. Um, part of what pushed me out the door there was um, a young priest, not a Paulist, who was extremely talented, very intelligent, articulate, well-educated, young, young enough to be my son almost. And I knew from my encounters with him that he understood the issues regarding women in the church. And yet, it was so clear to me that he wouldn't change a word of the liturgy. He wouldn't drop a word in the liturgy in order to make women in the congregation feel more included. It was the point at which I realized the church has set this up so that no clergy are ever going to stand up for women because it's been set up in such a way that if they stand up for women, they have to give up everything they've worked for all their lives. Not just the benefits of clerical life, which are many, I might add, but ministry, which most of them really love and do well. And when I realized that, that there aren't any, any men in the institution who are priests, who are really going to stand up for women, I realized only women can stand up for women. And here I am, I'm a woman, I'm a Catholic, I'm a person of faith, I'm well-educated, I'm articulate, if you'll forgive me for saying so, I'm educated as a lawyer, I'm accustomed to defending a case, and if women like me drop out, who is going to call the church to change? Uh, Marty Haugen has a song that goes something like, Who Will Speak If We Don't? And that captures um, my experience. Finally, I moved from that university Catholic community to what in my city was the only other progressive Catholic community. It was a Catholic community that was joyful and culturally distinctive and drew visitors from really all over the world. And I was there for uh, wonderful years, um, and the Jesuits who were there did make small efforts to try to accommodate inclusive language. They left, and what happened was that the parish as it existed simply ceased to be. So every community in which I'd found a haven as an intelligent, educated Catholic was eliminated. The traditional parish was no longer viable, if you'll forgive me for saying so. Uh, there was no Catholic community in which I could worship with integrity. I was on a collision course with hierarchy, 
And the hierarchy and individual members of the clergy, from my perspective, played a major role in bringing me to ordination. I lost all hope in them. And then I learned about the Roman Catholic women priest movement and its commitment to a renewed, non-clerical priestly ministry in the context of a discipleship of equals. And I realized I can do this. I have the education, the background, the training, and the ability to do it and to defend it. And it was a chance for me to contribute to the transformation of an institution I love, but one which I believe has lost its way. So in June of 2004, I was ordained a deacon. In November of 2005, with the help and encouragement and assistance of yet another wonderful man, a priest who resigned his official duties as a diocesan priest after 35 years of ministry, a man who is a thorough feminist and a man who understands the Jesus of the Gospels. I founded Mary Magdalene Apostle Catholic Community with the assistance of many of you here. And in June of 2006, I was ordained a priest. In conclusion, in this new role, I commit myself to the following, to challenge the hierarchy, to acknowledge the change that has already happened in the church. Number two, I challenge myself daily and the other women involved in Roman Catholic women spirit, in, I'm sorry, in Roman Catholic women priests, to repudiate clericalism in all its forms. Number three, I challenge myself daily to become a true servant of the people of God and specifically of the people of Mary Magdalene Apostle Catholic community in the context of a discipleship of equals. This means relinquishing my decision, any decision-making authority as a pastor and relinquishing the kind of authority that so often is exercised in a hierarchical, traditional pastoral community. Number four, I undertake to model effectively the priesthood of married clergy and women clergy. Most importantly, number five, I attempt to witness with integrity to the life, teaching, and death of Jesus of Nazareth in the context of my Roman Catholic faith. And what this is all about for me is engaging in a ministry of hope, a ministry of hope to the hopeless like myself, the, a ministry of hope to the fallen away Catholics, the driven away Catholics, the Catholics who are divorced, that it's a ministry of hope to the Catholics that essentially the church has already thrown away, the fallen away, the driven away, the divorced, remarried, who have not been able for whatever reason to obtain annulments, the gay and lesbian Catholics, and the progressive Catholics like myself who have nowhere else to go. Thank you. Your talk has been quite a revelation to me. Uh, I didn't know there were that many distressed Catholics. Uh, uh, I'd like to know what attracts you to the Catholic faith 
in spite of all these problems that you have with the traditional values, or perhaps they're not the traditional values, perhaps they're the things that somehow grew into the, into the structure of the church rather than the philosophy. Can you give me some ideas to why you're still a Catholic? If I might respond to the first comment first. Um, I know that some years ago, perhaps about a decade ago, there was a sociological study that indicated that the second largest Christian denomination in the United States was fallen away Catholics. So it's a very large number. And you may recall that the current pope said shortly after he was elevated, I guess they say, to the papacy, that um, if the church has to be smaller in order to become more orthodox, then so be it, or words to that effect. I, it, the question you ask is one that I can't entirely answer. Um, it's part of who I am. It's at the core of who I am. Catholic is, is just, it's just me. Um, I've, over the years, received many invitations from wonderful Episcopalians and Lutherans to join their communities. Um, I appreciate them. For whatever reason, it's not where I belong. What drew me, I think, to Catholicism as a very small child and what, and what plays still a very important part for me is liturgy, Catholic, Roman Catholic liturgy, um, the, the blend of uh, ritual and rite and um, motion um, I grew up in a church where we mostly sat and occasionally stood. Um, I like the combination of ritual movement. For instance, I, I, one of the things that's very moving to me is the, what scholars call the circumambulation that occurs at the time of communion, where literally the whole community gets up and at least in the United States, not in Europe, but in the United States, in a very orderly fashion, proceeds to process in circles around the community. You go forward, you receive the communion bread and wine, and then you process back to your chair. So we do it as a community, and yet we do it individually. Um, There's 2,000 years of Roman Catholic history, and it is filled with a spectrum of theological positions. And so I feel very very comfortable in saying I'm squarely in that history. I'm squarely in that tradition, very, very much a part of it. It's just that most people don't know the tradition. Most people think that the church as it is today is how the church always was. And that's simply not true, but it's very difficult to study 2,000 years of church history, and I certainly haven't studied all of it myself, but I've been significantly exposed, shall we say, to it. So, um, and I do, I am comfortable with structure. I'm not necessarily comfortable with the way authority is being exercised at the moment in the Catholic Church, but there have been wonderful periods in the history of the Catholic Church in which authority was exercised differently. 
and the structures were used in service of the people rather than to define who can be in and, and who is out. Okay. Uh, thank you, Dr. Raya, for your wonderful presentation. It's given me hope. Um, I suppose there are two kinds of Catholics, used to be said. There's the devout Catholic and the fallen away Catholic. Uh, Catholic is also uh, a word that can be capitalized or in small case. And our placard up here says Roman Catholic priest. In view of the fact that I assume the Vatican doesn't recognize what's happened, and the local bishop certainly doesn't, do you still consider yourself a Roman Catholic? I do. I anticipate that it's possible that the official hierarchy of the church will declare me otherwise. My position is I am Catholic, I'm Roman Catholic. Um, that's between God and me. And I plan to stay right where I am. I plan to um, keep calling my church, the church of which I'm a part, to a greater authenticity and a greater conformity with the gospel of Jesus. Uh, who was the bishop who ordained you, and is he or any other bishop prepared to ordain other women at this time? I was ordained by... I can't remember now if there were two or three. Three. <laughs> two, two women bishops when I was ordained a deacon and three women bishops when I was ordained a priest. Those women were ordained bishops by Roman Catholic bishops in good standing. Those bishops took enormous risks, huge risks, in order to participate in those ordination rituals, and they specifically ordained women bishops because of the incredible risks involved to them. So their names are, I don't even know their names, their names are um, in a safety deposit box on the um, certificates of ordination. They will not be revealed, I believe it's for 50 years Till long after they are um, deceased and buried and and hopefully buried in such a way that the um, their graves can't be undone <laughs> and they can't be removed from them and also to give the church time to hopefully embrace their actions rather than reject them. David? I don't have a question. I just have a comment. I have a lot of admiration for people like you who will eventually make this a better world. You've taken on a very difficult task against a very formidable force. Uh, I just remember it took them several hundred years to figure out that Galileo knew what he was talking about. <laughs> but I think what you're doing is in the interest of the church and most and all the churches. It has to be inclusive. And it's a very tough job, and I admire you for what you're doing. Thank you. Thank you. Jane, could you give us an example from the New Testament of how, from your studies, you interpret the, um, the way women were treated as compared to how we have heard throughout our lives, how the church has treated 
uh, has um, not treated women, but has told us how women in the New Testament were. Do you understand my question? In other words, you want to know an example of uh, Jesus' relationships or interaction with women that demonstrate his countercultural embrace of women as essentially equals. Um, The one that comes most quickly to my mind is uh, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 8, verses 1 to 3. Um, I don't believe it's ever read from the pulpit on a Sunday. I may may be mistaken about that, but there are many stories about women in the gospel tradition, many stories about women in the gospel traditions that are never read on Sunday mornings when the large number of Catholics come to worship. Um, This little passage of only three lines, I think, has very important significance. It follows a section in chapter 7 where Jesus is engaging the crowds about John the Baptist and himself, and he's saying, what did you come out to see? A reed blowing in the wind, which is, of course, sarcasm, and that's not what they came out to see. And he talks about in that passage how um, John came in a very traditional, if you will, Jewish way, fasting, uh, going out into the desert, a very ascetic way, and the religious authorities criticized him. And Jesus comes, eating and drinking, uh, taking sort of the opposite approach to religious experience, and they criticize him. In the very next story which follows, it's the story of the woman who anoints Jesus' feet. In the Gospel of Luke, it's moved from the end of his life up to this stage in his ministry, a fairly early stage in his ministry. And in the context of that event, the religious authorities who are there watching this woman wash his feet say, well, obviously he's not a prophet. If he were, he would know what kind of woman she is, and he wouldn't tolerate this. The very next panel, and of course he retorts, I I should fill in, I guess, that Jesus' response, first of all, as... I think many of us often do. You know, he read their minds. He knew what they were thinking. And so he says, essentially, just that. I know what you're thinking. And the way you evaluate her, the way you are judging her, and the way you are judging me reflects on you, not on her and not on me. This woman's conduct shows how much she is capable of love. And you, who are my hosts, haven't even bothered to show me the common courtesy of washing my feet. So there's that encounter, and then we come to this, these three little lines. And Jesus went on his Galilean ministry. I believe it's Galilean in chapter 8 still. And with him were many women who traveled with him. Among them, Susanna, Joanna, and Mary Magdalene, from whom seven spirits had been expelled, seven unclean spirits, or as Luke likes to say sometimes, unclean spirit demons, (laughs) so that the Jewish audience understands and the Gentile audience understands. He puts all the words together. 
he or she puts all those words together. So, and we're told that these women who traveled with him were supporting him out of their own possessions. I think that's very significant historically, culturally, in terms of the religious practice of his time, in terms of um, what the law essentially dictated with respect to his relationships to women. It was inappropriate, probably illicit, but he did it. And he didn't hide that he was doing it. He did it openly. So for him, conducting his ministry in a public way involved traveling with women who were drawn to him as disciples um, and allowing them to use their possessions to assist in his ministry I think it's critical. That's just one example. I uh, uh, am a Protestant minister whose journey in, in ministry began about 50 years ago. And you mentioned in the 50 years, could you call it a moratorium of the bishops' identities who uh, uh, began this chain of organization? Sure, it's a good word. All right. <laughs> um, makes me ask this question. Uh, in terms of the hopes that you described at the end of your talk, uh, how many of those do you see being fulfilled in, let's say, the next 50 years, in 2057, what kind of Roman Catholic Church do you see? <laughs> well, I think when we ask these questions about visioning the future, it's really important to keep reminding ourselves that the hierarchy, the magisterium, is not the church. The community of believers is the church. The hierarchy is one part of this enormous community. And of course, right now, in the hierarchy that essentially purports at least to make decisions for all Catholics worldwide, there is not one woman with any decision-making authority about anything they decide. So there are two ways to look at it. One is from the perspective of the reality of the church, and that is I think the church has already changed dramatically, um, particularly in the United States, in Canada, but also in Europe, in, in, in a large part of the continental Western Hemisphere, we are ready for women's ordination. We are ready for a church that is that uses the structure that exists but exercises authority in a democratic way. We are ready for decision-making power being exercised by the people of God, by the believer, by the believers of the community. So there's that perspective. Um, it's already happening. It's here. It's in our midst. Just like Jesus saying, where is the, the reign of God? It's right here. It's in our midst. And it is in our midst. Um, Jane, tell us what uh, 
Pope Benedict uh, said the other day, didn't he? He had some comments about uh, about women in the uh, church. Um, he did. He's he's. Um twice spoken on the subject of women in the church, and perhaps this is a predictor, if you will, of where the hierarchical uh, approach to women in the church might be going. Um, The first time he summarized nicely um, the, the key points of contemporary biblical scholarship regarding the roles of women uh, but he did. He backed away from saying, referring to Mary Magdalene as an apostle, and he didn't mention Junia as an apostle, who, of course, traditionally for the last thousand years has been characterized as a guy, even though the name is pretty clearly feminine. So this time he did, and, and we're talking about maybe three months between the last statement and this statement, he did go so far as to speak of Mary Magdalene as the apostle of the resurrection. So it could be that in his own way he's laying the groundwork for official change. And I do think it's hopeful, although certainly not dispositive, of how my personal actions have been taken that that even though my case has been in Rome now for several months, um, no public decision has been promulgated. So it means that I hope that they're looking at how people are responding. It's an experiment. They can sit back, watch, say, how's it going? What's happening out there? How are people responding to all this? not be responsible for it, in a sense, and learn from it. So who knows? I just know that for me, I, I had to reach a point at which I said to myself, I will go forward whether or not the hierarchy ever changes in my lifetime. Susan B. Anthony died before women got the right to vote. Uh, Elizabeth Cady Stanton died before women got the right to vote. I have to be willing to die before women are incorporated as full equals in the Roman Catholic Church. I do have a question, and it's not my own personal question, because I really don't agree with this um, idea that I present But I receive this um, comment from many of the devout Catholics who um, are for women priests, are for the justice of uh, feminists, but um, do not want to break away in any way from the traditional Catholic Church. And um, their response to me quite often is, why don't you just work and what they mean is do the work that Jesus asked us to do, to feed the poor, to tend to the widow and the children, to visit those in prison, um, and you know all of the other um, uh, wonderful teachings that Jesus gave us. Why don't you just work? What do you respond to uh, this uh, frame of mind? My first response is I would say the same to the hierarchy. Why don't you just work? (laughs) 
take care of the poor, take care of women and children in our society, take care of the preservation of the world's resources, acknowledge the, the incredible um, uh, threats to the survival of our planet, actively engage the world as Jesus did. That would be my first response. My second response is that uh, I really do believe, based on my studies of the gospel tradition, that if Jesus were here today, it'd be very clear, it's very clear that Jesus would be in favor of ordination. Um, The church doesn't have the authority to crucify him, but um, I'm sure they would excommunicate him, <laughs> just as he was essentially, you know, kicked out of the Judaism of his time. He was, he was seen as a blasphemer. Um, sometimes I smile when I walk through the protesters outside of Mary Magdalene Apostle because one of their signs says, blasphemy. And I always think to myself, yeah, that's what they said to Jesus, too. He was called a blasphemer by the religious authorities of his time. So um, it just seems to me that taking care of widows and orphans is translated in the modern world into all the, the issues that pertain to women and children in our world, which cannot be resolved simply by giving money to poor women and kids. It's got to be resolved on a much more structural um, and pervasive way. But finally, I would say, and I, I mean this very sincerely, everyone has to be where they are. I understand and appreciate that many, many, many Roman Catholics have to stay within the framework that they perceive to be officially acceptable and orthodox. I understand that. Jane, I'll take advantage of being coordinated to ask the last question. A number of people during the break have mentioned the fact of possible excommunication of you and us who are members of your uh, community. Uh, I mentioned myself that I would almost see it as a badge of of accomplishment, a badge of honor. And when I go to St. Peter at the Pearly Gates, That'll be one of my pluses when I tell them that I, the hierarchy, excuse me. What is going to be your... Maybe Mary Magdalene will be... Pardon? Maybe Mary Magdalene will be meeting you there. That's right. Good. (laughs) But uh, I know you're more sensitive than I am. What is your reaction going to be if, unfortunately, the Vatican stupidly uh, excommunicates you? Well, it'll be very sad for me. I went into this with my eyes open. I understand what the possible negative consequences are. Um, I hope, perhaps overly idealistically, that um, the Vatican will take take advantage of this opportunity to explore um, women in the priesthood, there, almost all of us who are, who are ordained have graduate degrees in ministry or religious studies. We're a highly educated, capable group of women. Um, but it, it could happen. Now, I understand that, um, which most Catholics don't, or most people don't, that excommunication is a discipline of the church. It has nothing to do with salvation or damnation, even though 
It used to have to do with life or death. <laughs> um, up until, uh, you know, relatively recently, historically speaking, because of the civil and political authority that the church exercised in some places. But um, so I, I, I don't fear that it's going to impact my ultimate relationship with the holy in any way that I'll, that it, to use traditional language, that it impacts my salvation. But um, it'll be very, very, very sad for me. This is the, it already is sad for me because there are events I want to go to in Catholic communities where I choose not to attend because I don't want to disrupt the event. I don't want to distract from the event. I don't want to create um, anxiety on the part of the clergy there. Like, what's she going to do? Is she going to come up to communion? Is she going to force me to deny her communion? I don't want to create that anxiety for them. Uh, on the other hand, believe me, if I have the opportunity, which probably wouldn't happen in San Diego, but if I had the opportunity to worship in a Catholic church where nobody knows me, um, I certainly will take advantage of it. Um, but it'll be very sad. You've been listening to a podcast from University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at www.uctv.tv. Thank you for listening.